This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, a psychotherapist to the ultra-rich explains why money really can't buy us happiness. Comedian Rod Gilbert gives his first newspaper interview since being diagnosed with cancer. And journalist Al Hunt discovers that arguments about technology and our dwindling attention spans aren't as black and white as they seem. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, after years of austerity and now a cost of living crisis, who hasn't fantasized about winning the lottery? But against the backdrop of the hit Netflix sequel, Glass Onion, psychotherapist Clay Cockrell points out there is a downside to extreme wealth, not being able to trust even your friends. Read by Emma Kayla. As a therapist to ultra-high net worth individuals, for me, the new Netflix sensation Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery hits a little too close to home. While the average person naturally finds it hard to muster any sympathy for billionaires, the sequel to the 2019 murder mystery film Knives Out perfectly illustrates why I would never choose to enter the complicated world of my clients. Trust me when I say you'll never see me buying a lottery ticket. Director Ryan Johnson sets his sequel on a lavish private Greek island owned by billionaire Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton. Mars's closest friends gather to play a murder mystery game over the course of a glamorous weekend, along with the world's greatest detective, Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. While this might seem like a far-fetched storyline, it is not entirely unusual. One of the problems I hear when listening to the super-rich is an increasing need to go bigger and more elaborate with social events. Why have a normal birthday party when you can hire the Rolling Stones to give a concert for your friends? Why throw a small Christmas gathering with your family when you can get Michael Bublé to sit at the piano and sing his holiday hits during cocktail hour? After a while, it's just never enough. The bigger they go, the less satisfied they become. Imagine having everything 
and not being able to enjoy it. The film also skillfully explores the greatest heartbreak that comes with wealth. Rich people can't trust anyone. Ever. And each time they try, and believe me, they do try, it will often burn them. All of their relationships are tainted by the power dynamic brought about by their wealth. In Glass Onion, while Miles presents with confidence and swagger, he knows that his weekend guests, his oldest and dearest friends from his pre-wealth days, are only there because of the power he has over them. He invests in their ventures, pulls them out of scrapes, holds their debts. Each one has a tie that binds. These relationships are not based on authentic love or open honesty, but a toxic dynamic that festers into paranoia. I've seen some of my wealthy clients innocently and generously help out an old high school friend going through financial troubles, or perhaps offer to send their kids to college, to suddenly realise that the relationship has a whiff of business about it. They begin to notice that their old friend seems hesitant around them, and perhaps too eager to please. The power dynamic has changed, and now there is a sense of obligation and debt. This has happened even within families. One of my famous clients was invited to dinner by her sister, only to arrive and realise it was actually a planned evening, with some producers who wanted to pitch a TV deal and product endorsements. It seems that every interaction comes with an ask. If this is what the very wealthy experience from their friends and family members, can you imagine what it's like when new people come into their lives? With every new friend comes a host of doubts. What do they want? Are they interested in me or my money and or fame? It's a fine line between paranoia and educated suspicion. Cautious of new friends and burned by their old friends, many of my clients become very isolated or only socialise in a bubble of other billionaires. While most of us do not feel sorry for the very wealthy, in reality, it's not all helicopters, yachts and private islands. It's a complicated world with its own rules and pitfalls. And many people do not survive it. Throughout Glass Onion, it becomes increasingly clear that the rich often do get burned, and that wealth corrupts people because it robs us of life's true treasure. Friendship. After the credits roll, maybe you'll be left not wanting to buy a lottery ticket either, and instead wanting to hold your own friends a little closer. That was I'm a Therapist to the Ultra Rich. Trust me when I say... Glass Onion is Not As Far-Fetched As You Think by Clay Cockrell Read by Emma Kaler Next Years ago, the Welsh stand-up Rod Gilbert used to direct his fury at service stations, baked potatoes and the TOG rating of duvets. Now, he's tackling anxiety, infertility and his own battle with cancer. Here he explores a new take on comedy with Brian Logan Read by Rodri Miles A lot has changed since Rod Gilbert began touring The Book of John in 2019, a tour that still hasn't come to an end. First, it was interrupted by a pandemic. 
You may have heard about that. Then, in 2022, Gilbert had to pause the tour again with a persistent, unexplained throat problem. Trekking Cuba to raise money for the Valindra Cancer Centre in Cardiff, of which he is a long-standing patron, Gilbert discovered the problem was, in fact, cancer, for which he has been in treatment at Valindra since. I'm sitting there having chemo, he tells me, with a picture of me on the wall as a fundraising patron. You couldn't make it up, honestly. The tone of voice via Zoom from Wales is recognisable to anyone familiar with the 54-year-old stand-up. Escalating dismay is the keynote. On stage, it ascends to a full-blown rant and stays there. Or it used to. It's softened a bit now, says Gilbert. That's just as well. Gilbert needs to look after himself. This is his first national newspaper interview since his stage 4 cancer diagnosis in July, as he recovers from surgery, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. It does feel weird, he admits. I don't know how much to talk about the cancer. I haven't really worked out what to say. I'm more than happy to talk about it, but I haven't had time to process it at all. He's emerged from his convalescence. Some days I'm well enough to potter, Another days, or whole weeks I'm in bed, to discuss the digital and DVD release of the Book of John. The show marked a departure for the Carmarthen man and a career peak, give or take 2008, for the ages, Rod Gilbert and the award-winning mince pie. After years confronting life's milder irritants, service stations, baked potatoes, the pog rating of duvets, with apoplectic fury, he returned after a seven-year hiatus with a show which discusses matters of very considerable significance. Bereavement, a recent mini-stroke, difficulties conceiving a child with his wife, the comedy writer Sean Harris. Overheatedness was still Gilbert's stock in trade, but now he had everything to be overheated about. What's remarkable about the show is Gilbert's candour and, despite charting territory he had not previously gone near in 20 years of stand-up, how funny he makes it all. That's partly because his mouse that roared shtick, however softened, remains hilarious. It's also down to John. John was Gilbert's chauffeur throughout the period the show records, because after his mini-stroke, the comic wasn't allowed to drive. Always on hand with some choice idiocy as Gilbert's life collapses around him, John's dimwit conversation is the grease that oils the show's wheels. John is, I venture, a bulletproof device for bringing levity to heavyweight material. Device? What? responds Gilbert. And I worry that with my barely concealed scepticism as to whether John actually exists... I've triggered another rant. But no, there's a twinkle in Gilbert's eye. Until this show, he says, all my stand-up was made up. I think pretty much everything was entirely fictitious. And in this show, it's not. It's all true stuff that happened. The stroke, my mum's Alzheimer's, the fertility treatment. And John does exist. I did hire a driver for that year. But yes, there's some comedic license taken with our arguments. He pauses. 
To say any more than that would spoil it, wouldn't it? The Book of John wasn't the first time Gilbert publicly addressed male infertility. With shows such as Rod Gilbert's work experience and Rod Gilbert's growing pains, many will know the Welshman more as a TV presenter than a stand-up. And in that role he fronted two intimate and autobiographical BBC documentaries in 2018 and 2021 on social anxiety and infertility. They made a big impact, and they also changed the direction of his career. With his 2012 live show, The Man with the Flaming Battenberg Tattoo, Gilbert had felt his stand-up running aground. I was having to look for things to be angry about to fit what I did, he says, and that's diminishing returns clearly. I felt that, and I think audiences felt that. When that tour ended, he announced he was quitting live comedy. And for seven years, I didn't miss it at all, didn't write the word, not motivated in any way to do it. But the experience of making those documentaries and all that other life stuff he was dealing with opened Gilbert up to a new way of working. A man who had only ever lied on stage began telling the unvarnished truth. A man with extreme social anxiety started talking to strangers about his most intimate experiences. As I got older, I started to feel, and maybe this is a bit wanky, that I've got a bit of a platform here, and I should be doing more with it than just talking about toothbrushes. More than that, though, he adds, I have definitely become somebody who wants to be really open and talk about stuff, and who sees the value in talking. It's the same with his cancer today, he says. Pretty much there used to be two reactions to my comedy, says Gilbert. You're funny or you're not. Whereas now I get letters and emails from all over the world from people talking about their own experience of a stroke or their parents, Alzheimer's or infertility. It's a totally different response and I really like it. Off stage, says Gilbert. Years ago, if I'd gone for a walk down the beach with the dog, I'd have kept my head down and not engaged with anybody. Whereas now, if somebody stops me, I'll end up in an hour's chat about infertility, cancer, whatever. The most intimate conversations. It's a turnaround, and an unusual role for a comic. I tell Gilbert I can't imagine Jimmy Carr having heart-to-hearts on the beach. He replies... I can't imagine Jimmy Carr on a beach, to be honest. So committed is Gilbert to his new, no-filter way of being, he's already hatching plans for the stand-up show that addresses his cancer experiences. If I get through this, he says, and then breaks off, I've got to stop saying that. People tell me off. When you're going through cancer, any sign of doubt or negativity gets nipped in the bud very quickly. And so he restarts. When I get through this, the next show will be in a similar vein. The cancer is on my mind 24-7, but when I'm well enough to write, I'm jotting down a few things. And there is humour in there, definitely. This conviction represents another about turn from Gilbert, who used to doubt he'd ever write another stand-up show. Every Edinburgh I was like, how on earth am I going to write another show next year? How am I going to write even another five minutes? 
Whereas now, I'm mad keen. I got a 250-page document of stuff that's on the go. Don't rule out a comeback for the offstage star of the Book of John, neither. Well, the response to John is just insane, says Gilbert. People waiting backstage asking, is John here? He's like a folk hero. Well, he's more popular than I am. All of which gives Gilbert something to focus on as he navigates a challenging period. All my work has gone. My social life has gone. Everything has gone. Everything. It's just me and this bloody cancer, really. The postponed final seven gigs of the Book of John tour are scheduled for 2023. Having them is something to look forward to, really. But I'm making things sound very gloomy, and they're not. Today he has been cheered by the fact that his stand-up pals, Rob Bryden, Greg Davis and others, are rallying to his aid, hyping the book of John's release on social media and beyond, because Gilbert isn't well enough to do so himself. I'm really aware of mental health now, he says, and I'm checking in with myself every day. I feel fine, weirdly. I'm happy, optimistic and hopeful that next year it'll all come good. That was Rod Gilbert. I think about my cancer 24-7. But there's humour in there, definitely. By Brian Logan. Read by Rodri Miles. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, is the ping of a text stealing our focus or do we just lack willpower? And could mindless scrolling ever be good for our brains? L. Hunt unpacks some surprising truths about our attention spans and technology. Read by Emma Kayla. How does it feel inside your head? Turn your attention inwards. Maybe you're daydreaming, allowing your mind to wander. Or maybe it feels sharp and alert. Maybe your thoughts are forging freely ahead, a sign that you have achieved the fabled state of flow. More likely, however, your brain feels like a browser with too many tabs open. From the widespread reports of a post-pandemic brain fog and the books on deep work and stolen focus, topping bestseller lists, to the soaring diagnosis of ADHD in adults and children, 
it seems we are increasingly concerned by our ability to pay attention. Early last year, the Centre for Attention Studies at King's College London found that 49% of 2,000 adults surveyed felt their attention span was shorter than it used to be. Almost as many, 47%, agreed that deep thinking has become a thing of the past. These are generalisations and impossible to quantify. We have no consistent measure of attention or deep thinking, let alone of contrasting those through history with today's. But the response proves that we at least perceive there's a problem. I have been feeling the same myself. Last year, writing, my job for more than a decade, started to feel more laborious. Unrelated to the complexity of the task, I found it hard to manage my time, or structure an argument, or see how one thought followed another. Directing my attention felt outside my grasp. I confessed to a friend that I had been googling the symptoms of ADHD, increasingly convinced I would receive a diagnosis. Or maybe, he replied kindly, my struggle had more to do with spending upwards of eight hours a day staring at screens, without real breaks, for weeks at a time. Maybe the mental strain I was feeling was not a sign of executive dysfunction, but an apt response. I've studied hundreds of people over the decades, and many, many people report feeling distracted and having a loss of control, says cognitive psychologist Gloria Mark over Zoom. But not everybody, she adds. A professor of informatics at the University of California, Mark has been researching human-computer interaction and technology's effects on our day-to-day lives since the mid-1990s. Now, in her first book, Attention Span, Finding Focus for a Fulfilling Life, Mark brings together her findings for a lay audience, and the results are startling. It's not as simple as flow good, screens bad. Most strikingly, it is not even the case that we should necessarily be striving to focus at all. Broadly speaking, there are two schools of thought on attention. The first argues that we haven't lost our ability to focus. It has been wrested, even stolen from us by technology. In this view, we are little more than lab rats, lured by notifications and algorithms, pings and dings in a large-scale social experiment. We may develop strategies for resisting those dopamine dispensers, such as blocking software or switching to a brick phone, but the game is rigged against us. Those in the second camp may scoff at this. They maintain that most of our struggles with focus are more to do with self-control. There's no notification that can distract us unless we are on some level willing to be distracted. Even the notion of a shorter attention span may provoke scepticism. Instead, could it be that you're just not that motivated? Whichever worldview you subscribe to, that our attention has been hijacked by our devices or by our lack of self-discipline, they share an element of fatalism. There is either little you can do, or you're just not doing enough. Mark believes that neither of these views is quite right. In attention span, she dismantles common misconceptions about our attention, among them that we should always be striving to focus when at work on our computers, and that the mindless scrolling we do on screens is counterproductive. The reality is more nuanced, says Mark, but our digital lives have evolved so fast 
we have found ourselves struggling to keep up or safeguard ourselves. That's why I think we've got to this point, where we're having such a hard time controlling our attention, because we haven't figured out yet how we can integrate this technology in our lives and use it wisely. Mark has been studying distraction since 2004, when she carried out the first of her studies on knowledge workers, who work primarily with computers. Shadowing them with a stopwatch, she logged how long they spent on one activity, opening their email, before switching to another, making a call. It was painstaking work, like watching paint dry, one of her participants said self-effacingly of their own routine, but effectively illustrated how our attention roamed about, often with no obvious prompt. The results showed that people shifted their attention, on average, every three minutes or so, including to interact with colleagues. When restricted to just computer activity, it was about 30 seconds quicker. At the time, this seemed unfathomably fast, says Mark, but it was nothing compared to what was to come. With developments in tracking technology in the 2010s, Mark was able to repeat the study with greater precision, amassing thousands of hours of observation. In 2012, the average time spent on any screen before switching was down to 74 seconds. Since then, it has declined even further. Research by Mark and others from 2016 to 2021 put it relatively consistently at just 47 seconds. Crazily short, she says. The result holds true, regardless of job or age. Though Mark studied all adults, distractioning in developing minds is even less known. Simply put, Mark concludes in her book, Our personal use of technologies affects our ability to pay attention. Those in the first camp might feel validated by this, but Mark cautions, it's not a straightforward trade-off. There are so many things in our culture and society that collude to make us distracted. It's more than just targeted algorithms. In film and TV, for example, shot lengths have been getting pacier over decades potentially influencing our own processing and behaviour in ways we may not be aware of. On social media, we consume and produce content in bite-sized chunks, at a frenetic pace. We are creating the culture, says Mark. Our attention spans have shaped the media, and the media in turn is shaping our attention. Further complicating the issue is that, though the world at large might seek to distract us, we are not equally susceptible. There's aspects of our individual natures. It's more than just a lack of willpower, she says. Personality plays a part in how we use the internet, and what for. Some people find it easier than others to recover from interruptions, making them more effective multitaskers. Others are innately predisposed towards self-regulation. If they go to social media, they are pretty good at getting themselves back on track, says Mark. For some... Individual traits coalesce with context to create a perfect storm of distraction. Mark's research found the higher a person scores in eroticism and urgency tests, the shorter their attention span. It doesn't mean you can't change, but you'll have a harder time than others. Mark's own doctor confessed to an extreme strategy for writing a grant application. To book a round-trip plane journey from California to Washington DC and write on the plane literally rising above earthly distractions. I couldn't believe it, she says. He said he has to change his environment. He has to put himself in a place where he can't get access to the internet. And apparently he's got the money to do it. 
The very design of the internet mirrors how we think, explaining how we can lose hours down a rabbit hole on YouTube or Wikipedia. In terms of a semantic network, we think naturally in terms of associations, and the internet just aligns with that so well, says Mark. Stress and exhaustion further exacerbate the problem, diminishing our ability to resist temptation. It means the line between free will and conditioning has blurred. We might genuinely want to learn more, or we might be impulsively clicking on links. Either way, our curiosity is aroused and, with the next video or web page, rewarded, perpetuating the cycle. The many influences Mark identifies on our attention individual, social, environmental, technological emphasises not only the scale of the challenge, but the limits of zeroing in on any one of them for a potential solution. Distraction isn't a tech problem, or a people problem, it's both, inextricably intertwined. Indeed, one of Mark's most disquieting findings is that we have become so accustomed to being interrupted, we do it to ourselves. Mark found that email trumped social media as a source of interruptions, with study participants checking their inboxes an average of 77 times daily, one checked 374 times. But most concerning was that 41% were doing so of their own accord, without external triggers. It's proof that even if we turn off notifications, we can't escape those internal triggers. We have these 47 second attention spans, and we maintain them by interrupting ourselves, Mark says. I feel it myself. This tension that builds up so that I have to change my screen, go to a new site or social media or whatever. Accordingly, the salve often proposed for fragmented focus is flow. The psychological state of being so engrossed in your work that you lose track of time, and even the outside world. Mark has extensive experience of flow, though not in her scientific career. Before she did a master's degree in statistics, paving the way for her to pursue psychology and computer usage, Mark studied fine art, specialising in abstract expressionism. She abandoned her dreams of being an artist in the face of the economic reality. But years later, those hours spent in flow, painting and drawing and thinking laterally proved valuable in her scientific research. What she discovered is that most knowledge work requires analytical thinking that precludes us from getting swept away. You see a lot of people claim that when you're working on your computers and in your everyday life, you can get into flow. But it's very much about the nature of the work. Working on a spreadsheet or writing a report, it's not conducive. In fact, flow depends on a certain level of challenge, whereby we feel pleasurably engaged and extended, making us happy, but also causing low-level stress. It's a myth that we should be continually focused. It's too stressful, says Mark. Equally, though mindless digital diversions like playing Candy Crush or even scrolling social media might seem like exactly the kind of time-wasting that we should be striving to avoid, it actually serves a valuable function, says Mark. That kind of easy, rote activity is not only enjoyable, it replenishes our cognitive resources, necessary for us to be productive later on. The fact that flow is not only rare, but draining, and that taking a break to scroll a different screen or play a game on your phone can be restorative, is proof of the need for nuance. 
The moralizing over productivity and screen time is unhelpful when it comes to finding solutions, but highly profitable as the boom in useless blue light glasses and distraction-free tech goes to show. Last year, writer Johan Hari's book Stolen Focus, decrying the huge invasive forces corroding our concentration and championing flow as a solution, was a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. Stolen Focus concludes by calling for an urgent societal movement to reclaim our minds and, in the meantime, chase that flow state. Hari himself took a months-long digital detox on Cape Cod. Like others, Mark has concerns about Hari's one-sided argument and research. It is no more possible for us to sustain focus all day than it is for us to lift weights non-stop, she says. Yet that is exactly what many of us expect of ourselves, at the expense of our own well-being. The problem is felt well beyond the small segment of the population with ADHD, says Mark. People are saying we have this epidemic of ADHD. But we should hold back on making that claim. More research is needed into any relation between ADHD and use of personal devices. But it may be that people are simply exhausted and trying and failing to focus. Much advice sidesteps this self-assessment through the use of productivity software that restricts access to social media. But this, says Mark, undermines our autonomy, especially the cold turkey approach. It takes agency away from people, like having training wheels on your bike and you never learn to ride the bike. In attention span, Mark makes the case for a new evidence-based approach to attention, one that works with our tech-riddled modern world and tendencies towards distraction, instead of trying to squeeze the genie back in the bottle. We are stuck with technology. We can't give it up, so let's not even talk about that. But we can use it in an intelligent way to find the benefits. Rather than aspiring towards flow, or always being focused, Mark suggests we should aim for a balance of attentional states that reflects our natural circadian rhythms, Identifying your individual chronotype, whether you work better early, late, or are a moderate type, sometimes split into lions, bears, dolphins, and wolves, can help you destructure your day for ease, Mark says. It's a matter of understanding when you're at your peak, when you've got the capacity to do hard work, to be creative, and to understand when you don't. She and I are both bears, so we're most productive in daylight between 10am and 2pm, when lions are winding down and dolphins and wolves are getting started. By becoming aware of those precious peaks, Mark says, we can protect that window for work requiring creativity or concentration, not wasting them on email. She has learnt to do it herself. I used to get totally exhausted. At the end of the day, my brain was just fried. I learned to pull back and take a break. Now, for her downtime, Mark will schedule undemanding admin or revive with a walk around the block or by playing an online word game. I realised that I had been under so much stress for a very long time, she says. At the societal level, Mark supports right-to-disconnect laws to combat email overload, but says the cultural shift may have to come first. She suggests cultivating meta-awareness of our own attention whether we have resources to burn or need to refuel, and engagement with tech. 
If you end up going to social media, keep yourself in the present by asking, am I still getting value out of being here? If not, and you're feeling increasingly drained or conversely refreshed, then leave, Mark says. It is a more pragmatic and even, dare I say, empowering outlook on our technological future than many. I am very optimistic that we can take control and change the way things are, agrees Mark. But the first step is accepting that our attention, like our time, is finite and that we can choose how we spend it. That was Is Modern Life Ruining Our Powers of Concentration? by L. Hunt. Read by Emma Kayla. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Kayla and Rodri Miles and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.